0: Hello, hello, and welcome to the Love Doctor podcast, research informed advice that can lubricate any conversation about sex. My name is Leah Tidy, and I'm glad to have you here. Today on the show, I'll be answering your questions about how to talk to kids about sex and about identifying as asexual. I'll also be sharing part two of my interview with Emily Percival Patterson, where we talk about coming out to our parents, how to create safe, inclusive spaces, and get into all the juicy details about their relationship with Clary Chambers. Clary will be my next guest on the podcast, and I am so excited to share this power couple story, both in and out of the bedroom. But first, Today in Sense. Last week, I talked about reading Today's Parent, but I didn't tell you about my own journey and whether or not I want to have kids. As a cis woman, I have felt a lot of pressure to become a parent. And I've had some people question why I was still in school after getting married. In fact, a few years ago, when someone asked me about school and I said that I was pursuing my PhD, they said, oh, really? Wow, Levi must be pretty patient if he's willing to let you stay in school and not start a family. Yeah, it it was a lot. I have spent a lot of time investigating why it is I want to have children and whether or not it's something I truly want and not something that society is telling me I need to do. Levi and I even made a whole YouTube video about our decision and how that impacts the planet. I'm just going to play a piece of it for you now. From an environmental standpoint, it makes sense to not have kids, because climate change, a huge part of why that's happening, is us. So creating more people doesn't help the planet. But it's a bit more complicated than that. So let's break it down. So I'm the youngest of three kids, and we usually had an exchange student or two living with us.
1: So I grew up with my mom and dad as an only child, nestled in the middle of nowhere on a 10-acre plot of land.
0: And I grew up in this wonderful chaos of having older siblings and all of their friends constantly around. So, Who is it?
1: It's
2: Jordan.
0: You can answer it. Hi! That was my brother on the phone.
1: My whole life, I've pretty well been the center of attention, uh, certainly within my parents' eyes, and uh, that was pretty awesome.
0: So we have an open door policy, something that we affectionately call a swinging door policy, because there is constantly people coming and going from our house, and I wouldn't change that chaos for anything else.
1: I had a pretty humble upbringing as a kid, my parents didn't have a lot of money, but What they lacked in money, they made up for in creativity. We were always doing arts and crafts, always hiking and swimming and exploring the outdoors. But whenever we did come home to this house that I was born and raised in, it was a quiet space.
0: I've thought long and hard about whether or not I wanna have kids. Uh, As a woman, I think we're often told in society that becoming mothers is something that's expected for us. And especially as someone who talks about and does a lot of research on sexual health, I know that things don't always go according to plan or we don't have access to the resources to make those choices. But for me, even though I know how chaotic it's going to be, I really, really want to have kids.
1: Having spent a bunch of time with our nephews, Jack and Luke, and our niece, Sloan, I understand now that having children is an extremely selfless experience and... That's kinda hard for me to wrap my brain around as somebody who has never had to think about anybody but himself his whole life. But I understand that that's probably the reason why I should have kids. I think that having children is gonna be a really important step for me as a person. I also know that Leah really wants to have kids and I know that it will make her extremely happy and I've learned through my life that making leah happy makes me happy um and i think that it's going to be good for both of us Whew. wow i got kind of emotional there
0: <laughs> of course a link to the full video is in the episode description and there is a ton of adorable b-roll with kids so yeah it's pretty worth checking out and now let's get to your calls
3: hi leah i've got some questions regarding Sex, of course, but with um, not necessarily kids, more like preteens, around the 13-year-old age. I've got two nieces. They went through something quite traumatic when they were a little bit younger. And now my oldest niece, who just turned 13, she's got a boyfriend and all that stuff. And But one of her friends kind of red flagged for me how she talks and whatnot online. It just Just let me know if I'm wrong here and what you think. She was going off about hearing my niece moan and bragging to her boyfriend and if their sex life gets better, he's going to be lucky enough to hear her moaning. But right now, she's the lucky one and just rubbing it in his face and whatnot. I personally don't think kids should be talking that way at age 13. I think there should be more of an... uh, appropriate way to talk about sex? What what is a way to go about that and talk to them about it more and more normalize it instead of making it something like a statement or, you know what I mean? Hopefully you'll have some insight for me how to help my brother deal with this with his girls and hopefully it will bring the connection closer between me and my nieces too to have this type of conversation and, you know, have someone that they can open up to Because I don't think that they really have that, and I just want to be able to be that person for them. But do you agree that there's kind of an extent as to how we should talk to kids about sex instead of them, you know, listening to these songs like Cardi B's new WAP or whatever it's called? I don't really listen to that one, but I'd love to know your insight. Thanks, Leah.
0: First, I'm so sorry about your nieces going through a traumatic experience. I hoped they were able to talk to a counselor or a therapist, some sort of professional, so they could work through that experience. And thank goodness they have an aunt like you who is really invested in their well-being and wants to talk to them about sexuality. As an auntie myself and someone who has spent a lot of time talking to youth about sexuality, it can be really uncomfortable acknowledging that the young people in our lives are sexual beings. I think that is part of what's happening here, but I think you do have grounds to be concerned about your niece's friend and their public comments about your niece's sex life. Your niece's friend is almost undoubtedly dealing with their own feelings of insecurity, and especially at 13, when it seems like your body is changing every single day. This could be their way of being cool or trying out being bold and seen as a sexual being, and and they might feel emboldened because it's online and it's not in real life. I don't think saying to your niece that she shouldn't be friends with this person anymore will help, but I think it would be a good idea to have an open and non-judgmental conversation about what you saw. Because if you saw it, then you can bet a whole bunch of other people probably saw it too. How you frame it is really important, and asking your niece about how she felt about the comments is a really great way to start. And not like a leading question, like, oh wow, I can't believe your friend wrote that on your Instagram. Did you feel uncomfortable with it? Because in that question, you're making a value assumption right away about how she should feel about those comments. Instead, you could say something like, I was strolling through your Instagram and saw these comments on your post. How did you feel about them? And be patient. She might not open the floodgates and tell you everything at once, like whether or not her and her boyfriend are actually having sex. But by you asking questions and initiating this dialogue, you're indicating that you're the one who's willing to have this conversation with her. In terms of resources, I would highly recommend you, your brother, and your nieces read Girls and Sex by Peggy Orenstein. I will say that she uses gender-specific language throughout, as is apparent from the title, but the depth and the range of stories that she covers is really quite amazing. I just finished reading it myself, and I wish it had been available when I was 13. Peggy is a mother of a young daughter, and you can tell how much she cares not only about her daughter, but also about the over 70 young women she interviewed for the book, all between the ages of 15 and 20. She talks about how in the US, and really it's quite similar here in Canada, how it is this age range in which a large majority of folks with vulvas will become sexually active. And for young folks with vulvas, there is immense pressure to appear sexy, even when they don't know what that means, which I would wager your niece's friend is exploring and experimenting with. If society is constantly sexualizing you, then what happens when you sexualize yourself? Is it liberating? Is it demeaning? Peggy talks about traveling the U.S., schooling parents on the difference between sexualization and sexuality. She says, when little girls play at sexy before they even understand the word, they learn that sex is a performance rather than a felt experience. But what about once they did understand? The sad reality is that for a lot of young folks, their first sexual experiences will not be pleasurable, and they'll probably feel pressured to do it. Either for social status, because they believe everyone is doing it, or even worse, from their sexual partner. I think it's partly because we separate early conversations about sex from pleasure, where we focus on safety, STIs, pregnancy, periods, etc., but not about discovering what feels pleasurable in our own bodies, navigating our boundaries, and how to communicate that to a potential partner or partners. For a lot of parents and guardians and folks who have young people in their lives, there is a fear to say something wrong, a feeling uncomfortable, of finding out more than they wanted to know, but wouldn't you rather have an honest conversation so that these young people can have more positive sexual experiences? As Peggy says in the book, it's not enough to teach about the mechanics of reproduction, not enough to encourage resistance to unwanted pressure, or to tell them that rape is not their fault. It was not even enough to equip them with birth control pills and condoms when the time came. We needed to talk to them about good sex, starting with how their own bodies work, with masturbation and orgasm. And we can tell ourselves that our children or young people in our lives, they don't want to hear about this from us. But as Peggy cites in the book from a 2012 study of over 40,000 young people in the U.S., most said that they wish they'd had more information before their first sexual experience, and especially from their parents and guardians. This is where my advice from the last episode comes in handy about working on having open conversations with our friends and family. Even if you start by framing it as talking about healthy relationships, you are opening the door to having conversations about sex and indicating to your nieces and your brother that you're someone that they can talk to. Percy and I get into that into part two of our interview later in the show, and we talk about creating a safe space, especially from family members. If you want to create a safe space, then clearly state to your nieces that I am open to talking to you about sex and relationships anytime you want. If there's something I don't know, I will try to find out, but I hope that you can feel safe and comfortable to talk to me anytime about whatever you are going through. And be really explicit that this includes discussions on gender identity and sexual orientation, that you love them and that is not going to change. As Percy says, that is such a gift especially when the sex education that a lot of young people get in school, obviously, depending on where you live, but a lot of it, it's not comprehensive. In fact, as of March of this year, in the U.S., only 29 states out of 50 require sex ed to be taught in public schools. And out of those 29, only 22 require that the sex education be medically accurate. So being informed yourself and steering your nieces toward resources that are accurate helpful, and non-judgmental, it's huge. I briefly mentioned some Instagram accounts that you can follow, and it would be great if your brother and nieces could follow them too. One is called Sex Positive Families, and they have a ton of resources about how to talk to kids about sexuality, and they even run puberty workshops and parent webinars. There's also the Island Sexual Health Society, and I have personally worked with them on projects for over four years, and they have amazing information. They even have a texting line so you can get a hold of them and anonymously ask questions. Links to both of these resources are in the episode description to check them out. Now lastly, in terms of the Cardi B WAP, you know, wet ass pussy combo, this is just the latest hottest thing about folks with vulvas claiming their pleasure. And using things that are in social media are also a great way to start discussions about sexuality and representation. Being able to talk about what your niece and other young folks are consuming and having them develop some critical thinking skills about what they consume is so helpful. In terms of Cardi B, I am not the authority, especially not on WAP, but I did find a great post called Five Raunchy Lyrics by Femme MCs That Prove WAP Ain't New by the sensible sexpert Dr. Wendasha Jenkins-Hall. I highly recommend checking out her Instagram, which focuses on, and I quote, sensible convos about sex and relationships that center black women and femmes. Of course, I have a link in the episode description. Let's get to the next call.
2: Hi, Leah. First of all, I want to say sorry for my English. I'm from Argentina. I speak Spanish, so my English is not the best. But I want to say that I love your podcast and how you uh, speak about things that no one or no one that I know uh, is speaking about. And I want to ask for your advice or what do you think about the asexuality and the grisexuality sexuality? Because from where I am, a lot of persons think they're, oh, if you have 18, 19, I'm 17, um, you need to have like a sexual life. And I'm like, mm, I really don't think that is the important thing in a relationship with someone. Uh, and... I don't know what you think. What do you know? Or because when I, you talk with someone, they're, oh, look, that's my position about this thing or this way I think. They are like, mm, are you OK? Or that's weird. And I'm like, OK, but well, thank you for listening.
0: Thank you for sending in your question. I actually did a whole guest lecture on sexual orientation in the University of Victoria's healthy sexuality class. I also took this class as an undergrad, and it was amazing. So I'm really glad that you sent in your question. First, the only certain thing about sexuality is that there is variety in how we self-identify and publicly identify who we feel attracted to and what sort of sexual contact we actually engage in. Research has shown us, and we are discovering every day in our own lived experiences, that sexuality is a spectrum, and there is such beautiful diversity along that spectrum. And asexuality is part of that, and I'm sorry that it has become something that people in society have shamed you about. Now, the definition of asexual, for folks who are listening, is a person who is not sexually attracted to anyone, regardless of gender. But it's more complex than that. Folks who identify as asexual, and yes, it is a sexual orientation and identity, not a sexual dysfunction or meaning that anything is wrong with you, asexual folks can fall in love with someone or multiple people and have really strong romantic feelings for them, but not feel any sexual desire towards them. Folks who are asexual may masturbate just as much as someone who doesn't identify as asexual. And some folks don't use a term asexual to describe themselves. Also, even though Percy and I talk specifically about gender in part two of our interview later in this episode, the same principle applies to using the language that folks use for themselves, be it gender identity, pronouns, name, and sexual orientation. You are the only one who knows your own experience, so choose a language that works for you. And also, don't worry about that language changing as well. A lot of my own research is about sexuality across our entire lives, And often our sense of self changes over time. And that means how we identify can change too. Okay, but back to your specific question. If you feel that it's not an important part of a relationship or that engaging in sexual activity with someone isn't something you're interested in, then that's great. That's so great that you know that about yourself. As long as you are thinking about what you feel comfortable with and what brings you pleasure, and folks, pleasure is about a lot more than just sexual feelings, then you should pursue what feels right for you. I provided some links to great resources that talk specifically about asexuality and about sexual orientation generally. One of my go-to resources is the Island Sexual Health Society website, which is linked in the episode description. Another is the Scarleteen website, which has a great article, on asexuality, that, as you guessed it, is linked in the episode description. I love their definition of asexuality as an orientation usually defined by a focus on romantic, aesthetic, spiritual, or physical intimacy— or on non-sexual friendship, rather than on sexual attraction or intimacy. The asexual community is diverse and asexual people have a wide variety of experiences, but what most have in common is prioritizing other types of attraction and relationships over sexual ones. Now, in terms of resources, my favorite is the Advocates for Youth website, which connects young people from around the world to discuss sexual health, rights, and justice. They have an excellent article called, I Think I Might Be Asexual, that is available in multiple languages, and I have linked the Spanish and the English version in the episode description. Now there's one more article that I actually used as part of my PhD research in creating theater with older adults and youth about sexuality. We actually used the article to start a discussion, and then we created a short scene based on the article and our understanding of it. What I will say from my own research, though, is that We assume asexuality of young folks and older folks, mainly because we don't want to think about them engaging in sexual activity. This is not to negate the experience of folks who are actually asexual, but is conflating asexual with non-sexual or sexless, and assuming, based on age, that folks either aren't or shouldn't be sexually active. That's a whole other story, though, and if you want to know more, check out the link to the three-minute video about my research in the episode description called You're Doing What? At Your Age? Before we get into my interview with Percy, I just want to share one final thing about asexuality. A listener of the podcast, Ren, was kind enough to send a voice recording of their journey as identifying as asexual. And caller, I hope that this will guide you on your own journey.
4: Hello, everyone. My name is Ren, and I'm a person who's identified as asexual for over a decade. You might be thinking, asexual? Isn't that a term only used in biology to describe bacteria, plants, or other organisms that reproduce outside of what we define as sex? Those things do fall under the scientific term for the word asexual, But like most things in the English language, and life in general, meanings are adapted to fit the needs, use, and identities of those using it. This word has many meanings, and one of those is used more frequently today when it comes to describing a person's relationship with others around them. It's a really simple concept on paper, but in practice, in a sexualized society, it can be hard to understand. In its most basic form, being asexual, or ace if you're in the community, but it's simply the absence of sexual attraction. Think back to your teenage years with me, right when you would have noticed a difference in those around you. Picking up on the changes puberty brings, but also realizing you had or didn't have preferences or orientations towards certain people. Now, those are two different things. Wanting to be close can be romantic, but wanting to sleep with someone is sexual. I've cultivated, craved, and developed friendships and close relationships with people, but it's never been sexual. Think of how you care for your close friends. You love them and you care for them, but more likely than not, you don't want to be with them in that way. There's a bond there that has romance in its own way, but there's nothing sexual about it. And there's a lot of other identities that are somewhat similar to this as well. So I first noticed and found a name for this when I was around 11 to 12 and people around me had started to talk about attraction and desiring certain things in a partner or finding things like butts attractive. I've never had that sexual feeling. And all I could think was it's a butt I don't understand. <laughs> all I could think of as well was a quote from finding nemo where it's just like ah I touched the butt and I'm like why I don't it's a, it I mean yes it's funny but I don't understand what the the hullabaloo is. I didn't get what people were seeing in each other that would elicit that response. And at first I just thought I was late to the idea, right? Something else is going on, but then it developed into something a little bit deeper than that. I began to think I was broken and I never would receive an invitation to this party everyone was at. That last one has taken me the past decade to work through. In a world that tells people that they're only desired for a few reasons, sex and being able to provide a family being a big one for a lot of people, it was incredibly hurtful to be told that I hadn't met the right person. Or when I did meet someone and I sparked up what I thought was a close relationship, they'd claim that they could make me attracted to them. All I had wanted was to be seen as whole and complete without having to constantly add something to the table that I could never provide nor am I wired to. I had been to doctors, therapies, OBGYNs, you name it, just to make sure that everything was medically fine and emotionally fine as well. And everything checked out. It was all 100% normal. All of my body functions were operating at capacity and my mental health was fine. So there was nothing biologically wrong with me, but I felt so off. I had to work through this and to discover more of who I was and to be okay with not being understood by so many people. And that's why I'm beyond thankful that we're moving into a place in society where people are talking about and educating themselves on the joys and sometimes horrors, so many people. It gives us a chance as people to grow more into who we are, what we like, and to destigmatize the idea of sex being something taboo. As someone who doesn't experience sexual attraction, you might think that this is the opposite of what I want, but I can attest to how toxic these misunderstandings can be just as a person in general. The way we treat men, and the way that they're not allowed to be vulnerable or to speak about the things that they truly want when it comes to intimacy and the same with women as well. As someone who doesn't experience sexual attraction, I can attest to how toxic these misunderstandings can be. The more we share our stories and speak with one another rather than over each other or simply staying silent, the more we can shine light on orientations and people who are similar we can begin to find community and solidarity with one another, even if we don't understand. Talking about my orientation and working toward acceptance has taught me that even if people may see me as an it, yes, I've been called an it, (laughs) or they go on to other me, I'm able to create a community and be a part of a community of people who will give space for others to discover who they are. And that's what communication and conversations like this are about, learning and being human together.
0: Thank you so much, Ren. I think you're absolutely right that hopefully we can start creating more spaces where people feel comfortable to be themselves and to explore their sexuality, whatever that may be. And now I am beyond stoked to share part two of my interview with Emily Percival Patterson, where we get into the juicy details about Percy's relationship with Clary Chambers, my guest on the next episode of The Love Doctor. Percy and I also talk about creating safe spaces, and I really want to hear from you about what would make this podcast a safer space for you. I'm working each day to make this a space for folks of all genders and all sexual orientations to feel safe, as well as folks of all races, ethnicities, and backgrounds. I recognize that I am a white, cisgender, bisexual woman, and my identity undoubtedly plays a role in the kind of space that I create. And it's my job as a host of this podcast to create a safe space for you to feel you can ask any questions you want and not feel uncomfortable or shamed about them. So send me a message either to my email, thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com or to my Instagram at leahtidy250 with your thoughts and questions. And here's part two. Unfortunately, a lot of those same very different in how they manifest, but a lot of those same stigmas about gender that comes up about sexuality. And though, you know, there's, there's conversation now of instead of making your child feel like they need to come out to you, it's like, well, why isn't this just an ongoing conversation as your kid grows? So there isn't the assumption that they're like heterosexual anyway. So they don't feel like they need to be like, oh, by the way, I'm queer or I'm gay or I'm bi. And and so I I wonder how that will evolve over time. Like I know even for me, like I knew that I was bisexual when I was 12 and told my mom that. And she was just like, "That's great. Oh, do you, you want to talk about it more? You know, I have lots of books and resources mainly about like sexual reproduction, less about, you know, <laughs> sexual orientation to be fair. I'm I'm a kid from the early 90s. So yeah, like there weren't there wasn't a lot out there, but uh yeah, like I kind of like that idea of your kid not feeling like they need to out themselves to you, that you've created an environment where they are just who they are and know that it's not like a I love you no matter what, despite anything. It's like, no, I just love you and know that whatever expression you choose, like as long as you're being authentic to yourself, then isn't that we're coming back to the like cheesy authentic you just have to live <laughs> your true self you know don't let anyone wear you down
5: <laughs> yeah and I think I think that like those experiences are already happening which is like really fantastic and I mm-hmm. know that that absolutely happened in my life uh, as I said like my aunt um, is queer and is partnered with another woman and so I and she's like one of my favorite family members. So (laughs) she was definitely involved in my life and she's my mom's best friend. Yeah. So I saw that like modeled. And so I don't, I didn't really have a coming out conversation with my parents either. Mm. I had just started dating someone and was like so like i was in a relationship all through high school and then to the beginning of university that lasted for like seven years
2: um yeah. with a
5: man and that was fine like he's wonderful mm-hmm. um and i definitely loved him in a lot of ways like still have a lot of love for him and our relationship isn't invalidated by my identity now by any means but when we broke up also because we did it for seven years like that's a long yeah, time a long time um, so anyways a few months after we broke up I started seeing um my now ex-girlfriend and anyways I was kind of feeling like I wanted to like introduce her to my parents mm. or at least to my mom and so then I was kind of just like so I'm dating somebody which is kind of news in and of itself because last time I was dating somebody I was like Fourteen. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that was, that was like a thing we had done either. And I was like, yeah, and her name is blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, okay, great. <laughs> like, when will I get to meet her kind of thing? Mm -hmm. And it just like, wasn't even a conversation that we had and we've had subsequent, subsequent conversations for sure. But I didn't Mm -hmm. necessarily feel like I had this big secret that I was holding and I couldn't tell them or anything. And I just kind of told them at a time that was like relevant Mm -hmm. Um, And that was in relation to this new person that I was dating and who I wanted to introduce to my family. And that was so easy for me. And Mm -hmm. I know and love many, many people who had a very different experience. Mm -hmm. And I see the way that, like, that has created trauma in their lives that has implications for them, like, moving forward. I don't think that that... It's a, you know, it's
2: not a prophecy that then determines the course of your rest of your life by any means.
5: Mm -hmm. But I do see and I feel really grateful for how easy it was for me Mm -hmm. and how I was able to kind of just go on this journey of self-discovery and rather than having to go on this like fight with myself, you know, Mm -hmm. And, and also queer people, queer people, trans people, and so many like folks who live any kind of marginalized identity have to fight that fight to exist in the world Mm -hmm. in so many ways and in so many spaces. And I think the value of having a space where you don't have to fight that fight Mm -hmm. cannot be like emphasized enough and it's Mm a value. And I think that that again, like at the beginning I was saying like I believe in community and I think Mm -hmm. that offering each other spaces that we don't have to fight this really exhausting fight with each other like that's a lot of what community means to me is Mm. is that space that we can like offer to and create for each other yeah so i think that parents can also offer and create that space for their children and like how amazing is that
0: yeah it goes even beyond that idea of like a safe space to like land and i really like how you frame that and and sad that that's the reality it's true is that it's a it depending on where you're living but the society that we live in it's a constant battle to get people to understand other ways of being in the world and as we said before it's not a threat it's not an affront to how they live their lives it's just like i just want the space to live my life in my own way but to not have to feel like you need to justify that constantly and so having a space where you can just be like i just get to be myself and i have to argue with anyone. I don't have to validate my existence to you. And I think that's why I really appreciate like, like you being willing to like chat with me on the podcast, because that's what I'm really hoping, even though it's a virtual audio space, (laughs) that at least, at least it's a, hopefully it's just like a crack that starts opening up other spaces for people to be like, oh yeah, like I hadn't thought about, you know, trans birth care and thought about how my actions might be not creating a safe space for other folks and so hopefully it's it's by hearing from a multitude of lived experiences that we can be like oh yeah like we're all just trying to do our best and live our lives and uh selfishly I also think because of the sex podcast trying to feel some pleasure along the way right <laughs> so
3: absolutely right
5: I absolutely think that there's like a lot of benefit in creating those spaces and I do think that you are doing a great job of doing that um but one thing i just wanted to touch on in terms of aiming to create these spaces and this is something that i know to be true for my own life but also was one of the like really prominent findings of the study Mm. is that if you do not explicitly state your values and your intentions Mm. people are not going to risk it unless they have to Mm -hmm. so if you have the intention of try to create a safe space, tell people that and t- mm-hmm. tell them how you're going to do that. And also they're willing to change how you're going to do that if they mm-hmm. tell you that it's not working for you. And that was a big thing that came up with the participants that I, that were, you know, generously shared their stories with me was that every single one of them tried, many were successful, to find a trans inclusive or at minimum a queer inclusive healthcare provider. Mm. They looked, you know, they read bios, they read references. They asked Mm -hmm. their community who was a safe person to go to. So I think especially there's a lot of conversations coming up um, with the black lives matter movement, which is so fantastic where people are saying like, Oh, well, like I don't have any black people in my space or I don't have any queer people in my space. And like the doors open, not my fault. They don't come in. Mm. And it's like, well, It is absolutely naive to think that someone who faces marginalization and discrimination every day is going to assume that your space is safe because Mm -hmm. we're not. Yeah, You know, queer and trans people are not assuming that you're a safe person unless proven otherwise. Mm -hmm. So if you are trying to create a safe space, that's fantastic. And like, good for you for doing that work. Final step is to tell other people about it. Yeah because that assumption that it's safe is not there mm-hmm. because of very real experiences and real very, very history. Like for example, um, as you mentioned before, like we have a mutual friend who pestered both of us about mm-hmm. getting Clary and I on the podcast. Yeah. And when she originally was like, you guys should be on this podcast. I was like, yeah, okay, maybe. And I listened to two or three episodes because mm-hmm. I was like, I wanted to see like what kind of space this was mm-hmm. before I decided if I wanted to one expose myself to it, but mm-hmm. also like associate my name with it. Hmm. So, you know, folks who are of any kind of minority or or are not like you are screening you and are making mm. decisions about because you have to make those decisions for your own safety because yeah. not every space is safe. You know, the life expectancy of a trans woman of color, specifically like a black trans woman in the United States, is thirty,
0: which is mind-boggling. Right. Just mind-boggling. Right, like
5: people face violence in. A multitude of ways. So if you are, like, kind of like that that idea that it's not enough to be not racist, you have to be Mm anti-racist, and you have to actively push back against those things, like, that is absolutely true also within trying to create. I mean, we had, like, a lot of discussions about that within my study of, you know, what were the things that you looked for when Mm -hmm. you were evaluating a care provider? And what were the things, like, when you were experiencing that care that made you feel either way? And mm-hmm. a lot of it comes down to virtue signaling. Mm. Um, in terms of the birth space and making it more inclusive, gender-inclusive gender, neutral, gender inclusive language um, is really, was, like, the primary thing mm. that people looked for. Um, and I also want to point out that I said gender-inclusive and not gender-neutral mm. because we do, like, live our lives in a gendered way. Yeah. And if, for example, let's say you're a healthcare provider mm. and your client tells you that he identifies as male, he uses he, him pronouns, and he is this kid's dad. Yeah. And you use they, them pronouns, refer to them as like the parent, or are not willing to use the gendered language that your client has told you they prefer like that's also kind of not great either <laughs> yeah so, like you're
0: making a total assumption even though they have explicitly told you totally. what the terms so, they want you like
5: it's not that hard to remember what pronouns somebody uses so just like ask them and then use them yeah but just to say that like gender inclusive language is the goal um not necessarily gender neutral language so like mm-hmm. if you're talking to somebody and they've, they've specified for you um, the gendered language that they want or prefer and need like use that language but yeah. i do think that if you are referring to a group of people who you don't know how they're going to identify using mm-hmm. gender neutral language is a really great way to indicate your willingness to adapt your language mm-hmm. and i think that also language is one thing but the where the real importance of it comes in is that you use your language to signal your values. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. using gender neutral language when you're referring to a group of people, or using the pronouns and the name that somebody has told you are their name and pronouns, it shows them that you see them
0: mm-hmm.
5: and that you like believe in their self determination and self expression. And they matter to you. Like mm-hmm. that's where the value of the language comes in absolutely. Yeah. So they're like one of the participants said something really great about, you know, if you can use work gender neutral language into your language. Mm-hmm. So that if you say, you know, we cater to birthing people in the southern Vancouver Island area, for example. Mm-hmm. Some, like, a cis woman who is looking at that midwifery clinic, let's say, may not notice. They're like, yeah, birthing person, that's me. Like, I Mm got a baby in my tummy right now. Yeah. (laughs) It might not make any difference. may not notice at all. But a queer person, a trans person, a non-binary person who maybe doesn't identify as a woman is going to notice that straight away. Mm -hmm. And that's going to, that shows them that there is space within your practice for them. So. Like, just, yeah, just that was one of the major findings was that, mm-hmm. like, people really are, they're screening their uh, health care providers. Yeah. And they're asking for community referrals and all of those things. And one of the primary ways that you can indicate your intention to have a gender inclusive space is by using gender inclusive language mm-hmm. and then also doing, like, lots of other work. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But also lots of work that's, like, really not that hard.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, that's what i find so interesting too like if someone tells you it's like if someone tells you their name you use their name it's like yeah so if someone's gonna tell me their pronouns okay great then i will use those pronouns right i think you make such a good point about it's it's not enough to be like i offer a safe space it needs to be like okay like this is a space that is available to and then talk about what that actually is and what steps you're going to take to do that. And I think that's definitely something that, that I need to work on more because a lot of the, you know, like in doing my own research, I had that face-to-face community and I had a long time to demonstrate that I wanted to create a safe space. And I used very like gender neutral language until I figured out what people used. And so now being in a medium like this, which is totally like, a learning process for everyone because a lot of us are using digital media (laughs) in ways that we never have expected or quite as much to say that you need to be really explicit because right now a lot of us are just relying on language to demonstrate the space that we're trying to create. So being very explicit about how safe that is and how inclusive that is. And like you said, not enough to just be, oh, I'm super inclusive and be like, no, you need to be specifically like, anti-racist like you know anti-ableist yeah
5: and i think that like once you're aware of them it becomes relatively easy to create safer spaces mm-hmm. um, because ultimately creating a safe space means creating a space that works with people that are in it mm-hmm. and in order to do that you just need to get to know each other and to care about each other and that's yeah. where kind of community comes in i think where you mm-hmm. can feel really overwhelming we are like all right i'm gonna have all these people and i don't know them and i don't necessarily understand gender diversity and i don't know how to make those spaces like safe for them but once you're face to face with somebody and you can see like a real human we are programmed to care about each other like Mm -hmm. we're social beings you already know how to care about somebody yeah you just it's just learning new ways to care about each other
0: which we have all done now within covid Mm -hmm. but it also
5: you know like when you're making an intention to create safer spaces it's a learning curve and it's also yeah. different for everybody. Mm-hmm. But I think one one of the like main kind of findings or examples of the study, which is so great because so many of the participants had really positive care. Mm-hmm. Um, so being able to present those examples of positive care shows examples that like when you can offer really inclusive care, pregnancy, birth, postpartum is not necessarily that much more difficult mm-hmm. for trans and gender diverse people as it that experience really, really difficult because there are. And dysphoria is really tricky and, and impacts like a lot of people's lives. And I'm, I'm definitely not saying that that's like the only narrative, mm-hmm. but a lot of the participants in my study had a really positive experience. Yeah, and They didn't have a lot of negative things to say. And most of the, any like negative thing that was said was about experiences of social dysphoria. Are mm. you familiar with that term?
0: Mm-hmm. I have heard it, but I think you're going to give a brief explanation. I think it'd be well, good for. Folks yeah.
5: To Lots of your listeners may be familiar with the term dysphoria. Um, when we, talk about trans folks in relation to physical dysphoria which Mm -hmm. can be kind of a discomfort or emotional distress about an incongruence between basically how your body looks and how you wish it looked often for gendered reasons and that's physical dysphoria is really about like your relationship and your experience of your physical body Mm -hmm. social dysphoria is emotional distress or discomfort that's created from being perceived in a social situation differently than maybe you're trying to or that you want to mm. um so in canada and in many cultures around the world we see pregnant bodies as being exclusively female mm-hmm. because we've really social like that's what we're told and that's how we think about bodies and gender yeah so a lot of the participants in my study and a lot of the participants in other studies that have been done with trans folks during their obstetrical experiences discussed a real increase in social dysphoria because Mm. people saw them both people that they knew and people that they didn't know you know as doing this thing that meant they were women
2: So Mm. then that
5: changed and influenced how they were perceived in those social situations, which increased frequency of like being misgendered or for some people invalidated their trans identity, like Mm. not them, but others perceptions of them. Mm. And that's, I think like a really important distinction to make is that I would say the majority of the participants in this study, when asked about dysphoria, talked about social dysphoria Mm. rather than physical dysphoria. And Mm. I think that that is, I think that makes a lot of sense Yeah, because I think that gender is also a two-way street. Mm. You know, we experience gender both in how we experience it within ourselves and also how we express it and then how that expression interacts with and is reflected back and
0: validated and celebrated from those people around us. Yeah, absolutely. So I think
5: it makes that social dysphoria... And the role of it when doing this thing that we have really been socialized to think of as something that only women do, I think, is a really important finding of the study. Also, because it's something that we can kind of
0: do something about. Mm. That's excellent. You're leaving people like that's a good starting point. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited that you are. Um, oh my gosh, so you're like so close to the end too, and then eventually, <laughs> like, when it gets like out into the world. I'm gonna like link it and share it and be like read. I'm excited to like read it too.
5: Thanks. Yeah. So I've decided that once I have submitted, because I have to submit it officially before I can share it around too much. Um, But I really disagree with the way that academia likes to put knowledge behind. A lot of barriers to access mm-hmm. um, like I just really disagree with that so I am once the dissertation is finalized and submitted I'm gonna put it on the website so the website oh, is great. trans it's like trans birth care in Canada and I don't I think it's like wix.CA because I was not gonna pay for the domain because <laughs> I'm a broke grad student but um that- you, I'm going to put it up there for download. So anybody awesome. can download it and read it. Um, all of the participants, like accounts, and everything, it's all anonymized. So mm-hmm. that's not a concern there. But I will put it up for download because I think it's a really incredible piece of work. Not in a way to like toot my own horn, but it was <laughs> a really impactful experience for me. Mm-hmm. And I think that the quotes from the participants like are so impactful and are so eloquent and make so many beautiful points and it's really like their voices that i'm just like trying to facilitate dissemination for yeah definitely um, but I, like it was really impactful for me to do and it was impactful for me to write and i believe that it will be impactful to read so yeah i'm definitely going to put it out there and if folks are interested in reading it it's going to be a long document but you can always <laughs> skip over like the methodology section and just right. skip to the results in the discussion the, yeah exactly um, Yeah, but it will definitely be, like, available to read. Awesome. Because I think there's, like, really important information there. and, And, yeah, it's great. Like, we should all learn.
0: yeah absolutely (laughs) right said the to uh grad school (laughs) people were like learning is excellent i love learning." right but i'm also going to have like a link to uh to your why have i totally lost the word website i was about to say (laughs) you know to your web page and i was like oh dear but a link to your website is going to be in the episode description so folks can go check it out and i highly recommend you do there's a video that's super accessible so you get to like hear and see you and, like, read text on, like, what it is that you're studying. I'm really excited to see, like, the the culmination of it all, which I'm sure must feel... So good. Okay. Yeah, I had... It feels really good. Right? It must feel so amazing.
5: It also feels really good because I hope that it will be a tool that mm. other people can use for trans inclusive care. And yeah. one of the things that I did within the study was use some World Health Organization, like standards of care mm, to by... make the argument that those standards require trans inclusive care. So I also mm. hope that it feels really good to me to like be putting it out also as an example for other folks to use to advocate because I think research for the sake of research is pointless. And so you should, there should be a purpose at the end of any research. And so I really Mm -hmm. hope that like one of the outcomes of this is like a clear example of how you can use like international law (laughs) to advocate for trans inclusive
0: care. That's awesome. And to be able yeah, you said use it as a tool for healthcare providers, for trans folks, for all sorts of folks who need to have this information and yeah, you're right. Like to be able to like implement that and say, I've done all this research so that you can pick it up and hopefully it will make you a better healthcare provider. You'll have a better birth experience, like all of those things. It's those yeah, absolutely. long-term impacts, right? <laughs> right.
5: I love all right. It. Let's get to these other questions. These
0: other questions. Very important questions. So I had, I had a great time talking to clary and what what we said just so you know is that two of you do not listen to what the other person said until they come out because it's going to be hilarious because (laughs) i've
5: before this i was like what were the questions she goes i'm not gonna tell you
0: (laughs) (laughs) i can't tell you that's great that's great i was super fortunate to talk to your partner clary and what i love is not only that the two of you are doing such interesting work but also that you're a couple because you know this is a sex podcast. It's hilarious. I'm like, "Oh my gosh, I'm super nosy. I want to know more about your relationship." And I think for listeners as well, we hear a lot from like professionals like in the field, and sometimes we forget that we're all sexual beings. And so, you know, I just like I like to make it accessible. So, I'm super excited. We're going to see how similar your responses are. So, these are back-to-back episodes where we get to hear totally different like work and research going on. But part of the same duo. I love it. Because I'm going to, I'll throw you a couple of, like, softballs. So the the first one we said was, who asked out who? Mm, definitely me. Yeah?
5: Definitely, yeah? Um We met through a mutual friend, uh, Tina Dur, You know, <laughs> t- Tinder. Um, and I sent the first message. So I think mm. that that's get gets me to the point and also I knew that we were on a very tight timeline so she was like oh like sure okay nice of chatting with you I was like okay but like when are we going on a date she's like ah I, ooh, I don't know uh, like tomorrow so um, anyways we managed to like squeeze in two dates in one week where that was like the only week we were in the same city anyways <laughs> um yeah so definitely me i definitely uh get credit for that and i will say i had a pretty great line do you want to yeah. tell you what it was
0: she did but i want to hear your version of it okay well i hopefully <laughs>
5: it's the same um we were both living in ottawa at the time uh, she was living in ottawa and i was visiting ottawa for work and i said uh i don't know i think i said like oh, like, you're so beautiful. Um, can you recommend any, like, other beautiful things I should see in Ottawa, like, other than you? <laughs> <So> <laughs> add to my sightseeing list, other than you. She was like, oh, okay.
0: She's like, oh, damn. <laughs> yeah, so I, I was pretty good. Clearly it, uh, that's it totally worked,
5: because here we are, like, two and a bit years later. Right?
0: Totally worked. Right? right? <laughs> okay. That's that. It's oh, I, I. There's so much that I want to say because I know what Claire's responses are, but I'll I'll keep it to myself so you can hear it. But who said I love you first?
5: Oh well, see, this is a point of contention because <laughs> I said it
0: first. Uh huh.
5: But she had purchased a card <laughs> that says, <laughs> said someone in Ottawa loves you. Oh. And, I, and yes. And I used to work for a company called Actua, which is an amazing. Amazing company it does um, STEM. with so science, technology, engineering and math outreach all over Canada. Mm. So I traveled a lot for work. Like I traveled at least once a month, yeah. Took like 88 planes in a year. So I was like in and out of Ottawa. A lot. Wow. So she had bought this card and she was going to like slip it into my backpack and, because I was leaving shortly for a work trip. Mm-hmm. So she likes to say that she said it first because she bought the card before I said it. <laughs> but I said it first because she still <laughs> had the card in her bag. So I'm going to say that that doesn't count. And I'm interested to maybe you can put on like, I don't know, is there a, is there a poll option on the podcast? Yeah, that doesn't would... count. Who said it first? Me, who actually said it, or her, who bought a card?
0: So, so You're so totally you, unbiased. <laughs> oh i love it i love it <laughs> I, I will I'll save my judgment about who said love you first but who is uh who is the most romantic in the relationship mm. see i i don't even know if i
5: can answer this one because mm. i feel like we are in competition with each other low-key <laughs> and like who can like do the most like cute stuff for each other. Uh, so I don't that's great think there's a clear winner. <laughs> for sure. Like and I also think that when we think about like, oh, like who's the most romantic? Like mm-hmm. I think that romance can look a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Like for example, last like the other day when she was having a flare-up and like I spent forty five minutes like rubbing magnesium cream into her body because she was like in a lot of pain. In my book that counts as a romantic gesture and I'm yeah. happy to do it don't get me wrong like I'm the, but I'm just saying <laughs> exactly. that that counts too but she did move across the world with me so oh. that I could pursue my masters so she's got like a pretty big mm,
0: like grand like, romantic gesture yeah mm. yeah yeah You're like she, I'm here with the magnesium she's like wow I moved to England and I'm like That's
5: tip the tip day-to-day, we're pretty on par, but she's definitely got me with that big romantic mm. gesture of moving across the world with me, that's for sure.
0: <laughs> anyway. I love it. I love it. <laughs> 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 Excellent. Well, because this is a sex podcast, and you can <laughs> not answer if you do not want to answer the next two questions, but... Uh, who who initiates sex more between the two of you? Oh, her. For sure. Absolutely. <laughs>
5: but in my defense, I'm an exhausted grad student. Yes.
0: That is a good defense for lots of things, right?
5: Yeah. No, I definitely... I'll give that one to Clary.
0: Yeah. Sure. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Also, is there, like... You have to tell me what it is, but is there, like... A like fantasy or something that you've wanted to try that you haven't told her about yet.
5: Mm, that they have not told her about. Mm. I don't think so. Um, I think that we are pretty stereotypical lesbians that talk about our feelings all the time. That that plays out a lot. The question of whether or not any of those will be coming true, considering we're living with my mom at the moment, Mm. is a different question. Um, But no, I don't think that there's anything that I... Didn't feel comfortable to share with her Which is also one of the things that I value so much About our relationship
0: Absolutely,
5: Is that like lack of like Shame you know and mm-hmm. that definitely Was present for me in other relationships But not in this one and that's like something I definitely really value about her But yeah no nothing that I haven't told her
0: Yeah uh, mm-hmm. Well now
5: I want to know what she's saying <laughs>
0: But as someone who, you know, now also lives with my parents, because yay, COVID, <laughs> it's strange times. Yeah, no, it's sometimes it makes it much harder to, um, you can talk about it all you want. And to be fair, I try and tell people all the time that like more communication, better communication, better sex, like those, that's just how it works. But, you know, uh, when you spend a lot of time talking and you don't have a lot of um, space or alone time to put that in action. <laughs> You know, enjoy the talking. And then, you know, when your parents are gone for 15 minutes, you You make it happen. Yeah, luckily
5: we live like a bit outside of the small town. So a round trip drive into town takes a little bit longer. The only like benefit of living in
0: the middle of nowhere. Excellent. (laughs) Oh, there you go. The benefit of rural living. Things we did not think we would say. You're like, yeah, (laughs) like more time. Right. Oh, I love it. And especially when it comes to, like, vulvas and clitorises, you know, like, a lot of them like to have time, you know? So that's perfect. I love it. I hadn't thought about that. I'm sure there's – there'll be a study about a rural-urban divide of uh, commute times versus rate of orgasms. That's great. Definitely
5: during COVID, at least. Oh yeah,
0: it's very relevant, very topical. I, you know what? I'll just do a postdoc in it right now. I'll drop this and do that. <laughs> That's great. Ah, oh, well, thank you so much, Percy. Like I, I really appreciate you taking the time because I know you're like super busy, and I am so excited to share this with you, listeners. I realize you're gonna, you're gonna hear this. Hello, you're here right, <laughs> right now, wherever you are, in the future. That. <laughs> Absolutely,
5: um, and just as like a final plug um, for the study, there is multiple social media accounts. Um, mm-hmm. I'd say like Instagram is the most active. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Instagram handle for the study is Trans Care in Canada. Mm-hmm. And there's just, like, a lot of really great posts on there that Mm. have more discussion about creating inclusive, like, birth spaces and Mm. some really great quotes from other published studies and that kind of thing. Um, And then also, you can reach me there. So if there's anybody that has any questions um, about making birth care
2: and obstetrical care and gynecological care more inclusive for trans, queer, and gender
5: diverse people. That's definitely the best way to reach me. And I'm like happy to have those conversations. And if I'm not qualified or unable to answer, like there are definitely other folks that I can refer people on to.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And I'm going to have that linked in the episode description as well, so people can like easily click on it and check that out, because... It's an awesome resource. I was actually like referring to the website as well. Like, I'm so impressed with the video. People, go watch the video. (laughs)
2: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining me today and listening to the Love Doctor podcast. On the next episode of The Love Doctor, I'll be sharing my interview with Clary Chambers about her work as an invisible illness advocate, accessibility advisor, and CEO of Spark Clarity. I'll also be answering questions about squirting. Yes, it's a real thing, but not like you see in porn and vulvas. So if you have any questions that you want to ask, send a voice memo to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com. And I will do my darndest to get it on the show. You can also check me out on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review. Till then, folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay consensual.